Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Let's talk about war crimes. It's been a major news story and uh, investigations going on all the time now about what war crimes are. Russia's President Vladimir Putin and his military in Ukraine are being accused of committing horrific war crimes against the civilian population of the country. So what charges might they face if they're ever inside a courtroom? What's considered a war crime? Michael Newton is a law professor at Vanderbilt University. He's an expert on terrorism, accountability, transnational justice, and conduct of hostilities, expert witness in terrorism-related trials, admitted to the counsel list of the International Criminal Court, most recently the editor of the United States Department of Defense Law of War Manual, the professor served as senior advisor to the ambassador at large for war crimes issues in the United States State Department, and he also served in the U.S. Army for 21 years, where he had responsibility as chief of operational law with the Army Special Forces Command Airborne during Operation Desert Storm. Professor Newton, thank you very much for joining us. How is war crime defined? Well, I appreciate you having having me on and, and in particular directing your audience at these really important substantive and political issues. Uh, you know, war crime is simply a violation of this established body of law and really boils down to one of three prohibited areas. The law of war regulates how we fight. And so there's a whole subset of rules there. It regulates against whom we fight uh, and the, the, the entitlement of personal protection, et cetera, and a whole subset of rules there. And then this is the thing that people are just now realizing. It also regulates uh, occupation law. When you're in control of an area, the duties that you have towards the civilian population come straight out of this body of law. So you put it all together, violations of this body of law, in the colloquial, we call war crimes. So I want to get into this a little more with you and, and in detail as we go through our interview. But do some nations refuse to accept the definitions of of war crimes, refuse to accept uh, the directions of the International Criminal Court? Well, that's, you know, that's actually two different questions. Yes, there are some that refuse to, uh, uh, they just have different policy prerogatives with regard to the ICC. But on the big subject of war crimes, no, there's pretty much unanimity across the international community, all countries, uh, sign up to this body of law. There's no, there's no gray zone here. There's no pockets where this body of law does not apply. Um, and you saw that in the International Criminal Court when we negotiated the elements of crimes, which are the details of all the genocide offenses, all the crimes against humanity, all the war crimes. Uh, that document is, ad is adopted by consensus. So there's no country in the world that is not bound by the law of war. So Vladimir Putin and the Russian regime are signatories to this? Oh, well, there's no question. Yes. Uh, and, you know, the law of war is found. Most people will have heard of the Geneva Conventions. Fewer will have heard of the protocols to the Geneva Conventions. But there's this web of law, the Conventional Weapons Convention, the Certain Conventional Weapons Convention, uh, the protocols there too, uh, the, the Chemical Weapons Convention, the Biological Weapons Convention. There's a, a scattershot of law here. Uh, but the bottom line is every country in the world is bound, which is why you see the Russians going out of their way. Uh, you know, the violence has to cover itself with lies. That's why they're going out of their way to say, oh, this was appropriate because they know that the war crime is impermissible. 
then they're doing that over and over and over again in a variety of contexts. Yeah. And they're sending out messages that the Ukrainians are responsible for the attacks on the Ukrainian population. I tweeted earlier today. Next, they'll be saying it was the Ukrainian military that invaded Ukraine. Professor Newton, is it your sense, professional, personal, uh, based on your experience, your knowledge of the situation, that the Russians are, in fact, committing a series of very serious, I don't know if we should even apply the word serious, but committing a series of war crimes in Ukraine? Oh, there's no doubt on the facts. A prima facie case is the way the lawyers would say it. The way the International Criminal Court says it is that there's a reasonable basis to believe that war crimes are being committed. No question about that, whether it's intentional attacks on civilians or depriving humanitarian relief convoys or starving the civilian population. But here's where I think it's very important to distinguish that the, the mere out the fact of war crimes does not automatically affix criminal responsibility on a particular commander or a particular unit. Um, and we can talk about how that's done, but to say that somebody is a war criminal means that we've gone through that process of granular evidence, and this is called the law of individual responsibility. Uh, so the presence of war crimes simply means that we have the challenge of identifying with admissible evidence in a granular way uh, who's responsible for those and that's the necessary step to affix criminal responsibility. That's what it's we do not, as prosecutors. Okay, so Russia has a history of behaving in the manner that it's behaving in Ukraine, even worse, Syria and Chechnya. Putin was in power then, he's in power now. No doubt Mr. Putin feels untouchable. Is he, as far as any war crimes retribution is concerned? And I know we're heading into that territory where we're talking about the individual but is he, do you think he's ever going to be brought to, uh, to justice? I don't know whether he will or not, but I do know that he'll look over his shoulder the rest of his life. There are no statute of limitations for these offenses. Um, and the, the, the major difference between World War II era and now is that this body of law has matured in incredible ways since World War II on the substantive side. But on the criminal side, in the enforcement mechanisms, we also have, you know, people talk about the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg. Many of those senior Nazis never thought they would face accountability, and they did. Adolf Eichmann, in the Israeli context, never thought he would face accountability. In Yugoslavia, Karadzic, Mladic, Martic, um, uh, certainly Milosevic, never thought they would face accountability. Many in the Rwandan context, Charles Taylor, president of Sierra Leone, never thought he would face accountability. So to me, that's not dispositive. The real challenge here is to build a jurisdiction, a court with jurisdiction and the right body of law, and then be methodical in, in applying that body of law against the right people where we can make a criminal case. That's the challenge moving forward. So, so how do you do that? Uh, understanding clearly that there's difficulty in as you've described, prosecuting the individuals in a case involving national leadership, military, powerful groups, um, all committing indictable offenses. How do you build a case? Yeah, I would just give you two P's because I like to think in alliteration. The first P is the politics. You sustain the political will um, because accountability is non-negotiable, right? These, this body of law, I often say, is the common heritage of mankind. Wars are inevitable, but every country of the world shares the commitment to this body of law. There's no country of the world that can say that law does not apply to us. 
So in order to apply it, as we've seen in the Balkans and Rwanda and Sierra Leone, et cetera, you have to sustain political will. And the second P is uh, particularity. Uh, building one of these cases is, is like a, a fine mosaic. There's snippets of information that sometimes come from, as you've seen in, in Ukraine, signals intelligence. So when the German, says, German government says, we have intercepted phone calls of people reporting war crimes. So that's a piece. Uh, obviously now in the cell phone age, pictorial evidence, refugee interviews, eyewitness testimony. Um, you know, there's now beginning to surface uh, facial recognition technology of soldiers mailing in, in the mails from Belarus war, uh, uh, war crimes evidence back home, like things looted from civilian homes. You have to put all of that together like a mosaic, piece by piece by piece, to get a composite view of criminality. And then you move to prosecutions. So the politics is essential, but it's also the particularity of building a precise uh, set of criminal charges. And we just have to be tenacious in doing that. This is a long, it's a long road, but it's, you know, as I say, the wheels of justice grind slowly, but they do grind here. Professor, you were personally engaged, as I understand, in the prosecution of Serbian leader Slobodan Milosevic in the 1990s. Can you talk to us about that and remind us, please, of what he did, what he was convicted of doing? Well, uh, 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 among a number of other cases, I would say, I mean, I think the key is that once we set up the Yugoslavia tribunal, the United States engaged in a very conscious, deliberate, we used all of our available legal, legal tools to build that case. So among others that might have resonance for Ukraine, uh, I took the FBI forensics team uh, into Kosovo to document those crimes against humanity. Uh, Milosevic is in some ways a great example because like Putin, he never thought he would face accountability. And so there's lessons to be learned about how we get these people on trial. Uh, but in, other, in another way, of course, the case is unfortunate because he died during trial. So we never got to the final point. Um, I think the critical takeaway in that case, as in others, is the mechanics of how we built the evidence and particularly how the United States and Canada and our allies supported those investigations and supported those prosecutions. Uh, they're very carefully built cases. That's why it takes time. And you just have to be very diligent on the details of the law. And that's the lesson for Milosevic for me. Are there more war crimes taking place now? Uh, we look at conflicts around the world and we see and hear about atrocities and atrocious behavior. Is there an increase or does, is that perception? A little bit of both. I mean, remember that we live in the era of the smartphone and, you know, a, a corporal with a smartphone can, can do things with a strategic consequence. Um, so, yeah, we're seeing the more, the seeing evidence that's unfiltered by the governments, even in a place where there's censorship, you can still get real-time documentation of that. You now have commercial satellite imagery that you never had before. Uh, you know, you've seen that, for example, with the reporting out of Buka, when the Russians say, oh, no, 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 those bodies weren't there when we left. Satellite imagery, commercially available, immediately surfaces to say, oh, yes, they were. Uh, you're seeing people capture things. In, in ways. And so you're right that there's a high visibility over this, uh, but in that way, it's, it's symbolic of the new information era in which we live. And I think that's all to the good, but I'll reiterate that we have to have a, a, a comprehensive mechanism for organizing that, for collating it, for building against the precise 
details of the law that we have to prove in order to get convictions beyond a reasonable doubt. So remind us, please, of uh, the responsibility of any military as far as its engagement with civilian populations and civilian property. You touched on that when we started our conversation, and I, I guess I'm going to go back to my previous question here and ask you whether you see that routinely violated these these days as, uh, as well. We've seen brutality on various stages, again, around the world in recent years. What's the responsibility of the military? Well, the responsibility in legal terms is to take all feasible precautions uh, to minimize or eliminate damage to civilian lives or civilian property. Uh, in an occupation setting, this is why the law of occupation is particularly important, Anytime you have control over an area or what we say effective control over an area, uh, you're functionally the surrogate government for however transient a time or however long a time. And there you have a much more extensive set of affirmative obligations to protect civilians, to ensure law and order, to ensure uh, in, in, in the language of the treaty, public order and safety, right? Um, so there's affirmative, but it's important to understand that those, those duties are also balanced against the, the law of Geneva of, of waging war. So there's always a, a sort of a balance between permitting the military to accomplish a mission and yet constraining the effects of that violence in appropriate ways and against appropriate people. Um, and that's why the military has an affirmative duty, for example, to have lawyers that are engaged in advising commanders. That's why the military has an affirmative duty to train in this body of law. And where there are violations, an affirmative duty to document violations and to prosecute people where appropriate. All those things flow from the basic principle that civilians are protected from the effects of violence to the greatest extent possible. That's called the principle of distinction. So the, the, the precise legal rule says you will direct your activities against the appropriate persons and property at all times. There's no, there's no carve out there. There's no room for derogation. You can never, ever, ever intentionally target civilians, full stop. Understanding that and everything you've shared with us, and I thank you for this, understanding that, does it surprise you, given your experience in this particular field, in this particular issue, does the depravity that is going on that people are capable of, armies are capable of, governments are capable of, politicians are capable of. Does, does it ever surprise you that, that we actually do these things? I think there's a, there's a human temptation, and this is why this body of law is so important. There's a human temptation to get into the maelstrom of conflict and to begin to dehumanize an enemy and create uh, essentially two separate moral codes for my people, for my tribe, for my religion, for whatever group you want to define, there's one moral code. And then the human temptation is to say, ah, but these people are different. That tribe is different. That religion is different. So there's a dehumanization that goes with that. Uh, part of that is a natural human instinct, but part of it becomes a self-fulfilling narrative. Um, and I think that's the challenge. And this is why this body of law is so important because it says to every single participant, but particularly the commanders, the commanders are the ones who are legally responsible for creating the right climate of, of respect for people, of compliance with the law, and on the flip side, of, of thorough investigations and punishment when the law is, is violated. This idea that because you're in a war, no law applies, nothing could be more false than that. Uh, and yet the moral temptation is always there almost ubiquitous in conflicts. 
That's why you'll never see completely perfect enforcement, but the failure to perfect, perfectly enforce this body of law in no way permits this body of law to be ignored or, or relegated to second or third or fourth order status. And that's the balance. We see that almost every battlefield, almost all the time. We just have to maintain the integrity of the law and the professional standards. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.